Hi, everyone. This is Christy, and today we're talking about mindfulness, trauma-informed practices, and how these relate to teacher burnout. These practices represent a learning curve for a lot of teachers, and one of the best ways to support both teachers and students is through high-quality, ongoing learning and professional development that is flexible, job-embedded, and relevant. That's why this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Infobase. For more than 80 years, Infobase's authoritative content, tools, and technology offer world-class resources for lifelong learning and are used by more than 70 million learners. Find standards-aligned resources across all subjects and all grades for any school or district. Infobase is currently offering a 30-day trial on all learning bundles. You can find them at edcuration.com. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. I've had at least 15 students who have increased more than four grade levels. He used theater as a tool to make great human beings. My expectations are high for all of them. One of the things that I really love about teaching is the fact that every day is sort of unique and different and strange. Today, we're welcoming Jennifer U. Brannon. Jennifer started her career as a theater and English teacher who transitioned to English language development. I would say that teaching English learners at the high school setting not only changed the way I teach, changed the way I view students, it changed kind of my whole philosophy of education. It was so rewarding and difficult. And um, I love, I have a special place in my heart for um, English learners. I'm the daughter of immigrants. Um, My parents are English learners. I speak uh, Korean and English. And so kind of using my own background, um, being bilingual and talking with my students who are mostly Spanish speakers or Mandarin or Vietnamese speakers really gave me a new perspective on what we do as educators. While Jennifer continues to teach English language learners, her new perspective led to yet another transition into instructional coaching. That was in 2013, and I've been an instructional coach since then, um, and I've been back in the classroom three times, and I'm currently teaching one section of English language development. Uh, and I, my job kind of evolved into not just helping teachers help English learners, but really helping empower teachers to meet all the diverse learning needs of their students. So I work with teachers across the curriculum and I've sort of turned into this instructional coach slash teacher therapist, I think for some teachers, um, because when when you're a teacher, you have a new crop of students every year. When you are an instructional coach, you have the same group of teachers for many, many years. And yes, there are new teachers, but then it becomes about relationships over the long haul. And so I have built deep relationships with my colleagues and um, teaching is, is so personal and so complex. So a lot of what I do is just grounded in um, trust and relationships. Jennifer actually caught our attention here at Ed Curation with her thought-provoking articles for EdSurge, where she is an EdSurge Voices of Change writing fellow. She writes about a number of topics, including how her own experience of trauma informed her teaching. 
She has over 15 years experience teaching and facilitating professional development for her colleagues, and she's passionate about advocating for teacher wellness and building collective teacher efficacy through deep reflection, quality professional learning opportunities, and developing emotional resilience among all educators. I want to focus on this transition that you made, which started when you were still in the classroom, um, just because of events that happened in your personal life. Um, to trauma-informed practices and mindfulness and bringing those into your classroom and now also into your coaching. And a lot of the writing that you have done for EdSearch has focused on trauma-informed practices and awareness around trauma. And it's a big buzzword right now. A lot of people in education are talking about it. It doesn't mean we necessarily are all talking about the same thing when we say that. And you wrote in one of your EdSearch articles that prior to your own experience of trauma, that your understanding of trauma and PTSD was limited to this vague idea that war veterans and victims of violent crime were the only ones who could legitimately use those terms. But you've come to recognize that it's really a part of most, almost all of us. Um, Few of us escape. And particularly in the last two years, there's been a lot of trauma around events in the world. Can you give an idea to our listeners of what you mean when you talk about trauma and how you've come to understand that word? Yeah, I think that the way we think about trauma is like everything is informed by our family systems, informed by how we were raised, our cultures, and I think being um an immigrant's daughter and watching my parents just sort of struggle, I think that there is a lot of unacknowledged trauma in my family history. And I think when you're in survival mode, like a lot of uh, new immigrants are to a new country, you just have to stay focused and keep working. It's like you're treading water. And then there isn't time to stop and say, this is really hard. And when I would complain about anything hard in my family, the response was often like, you cannot complain. You must be grateful Um, because if you stop when you're treading water, you drown. Right. So I think that the way I was raised was like, yes, life is hard and you have to fight and you have to struggle and you will conquer. Um, And so I was raised with this mentality that um, we don't acknowledge these feelings. We don't say that this is hard uh, we just keep going. And, and I'll say that that has shaped me into the person that I am. It, I am, I, you know, I'm resilient. I, I attack problems. I'm very solution oriented, but I would say for, for most of my life, there was a lot of unacknowledged um, emotion and pain. And then sometimes things happen in life where it's in your face and you can't ignore it anymore. The traumatic event that Jennifer couldn't ignore was the stillbirth of her first child at 37 weeks. Six years later, it's still really difficult for her to talk about, but she did want to write about it for EdSearch because of how the experience shaped her as an educator. You'll find a link to that article in the episode notes. I've come to understand trauma as this idea that, you know, something happens that changes how you think and function in this world. It, ch- it changes the wiring in your brain. Um, and when I think about the after effects of uh, the stillbirth for, for me, 
that that is what happened. Um, I couldn't think about anything the same way again. Um, you have this sort of risk calculation in your brain all the time where there are, of course, there are terrible things that happen. But for me, it was terrible things have happened and it could happen at any moment. And I, and I was convinced that it would. Um, so I, I realized in my second pregnancy, um, I was constantly afraid. I was constantly anxious. And that's, that's how I came to mindfulness, really, through the grief counselor and through my own reading and research. Um, and it really saved me and my sanity. Yeah. And when you say that it changes the wiring in your brain, you're not speaking hyperbolically. It, um, I just finished reading a book by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry. And I just, it's one of those books that when you finish it, you think, everybody needs to know this. Everybody should get every educator. Yes. Especially every educator. And then just for ourselves, just to know about ourselves, because that sense of something's coming up for me and I'm, I'm overreacting to the situation or the amount of fear I'm feeling is not in proportion to what's actually happening we may not even realize that that's trauma in our bodies, not just, you know, in our brains, but in our bodies. Um, you described it similar to what you just said in your Ed Search article. You said, when the worst thing you can imagine happens, there's no longer a reason to believe that all kinds of horrible things can't happen again and again. That sort of protective, invincible filter goes away and you think, oh gosh, all that, this, this bad stuff can get to me. I didn't think it could. Um, and in some ways, we may all be in that place a little bit. I mean, I don't think that COVID was necessarily traumatic for every single person on the planet, but it has been for a lot of people in different ways. And um, not to mention, you know, some of the other things that have been going on in the world that have the mental, there's a mental health crisis really across the nation and across the world. And I'm wondering what you're seeing from educators in your building because they are now having to process their own trauma and teach in a way that acknowledges, validates, and accommodates for the trauma of their students, but they may not be trained to do it. Yeah, I think that goes to this idea of little t trauma, right? So this kind of low hum of trauma and anxiety that we have been feeling because like a low-grade infection, right? That you just can't... Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And it really has changed the way we think. So even if we did not experience the loss of a loved one or had been really ill ourselves, right? It changed the way we think about everything. You know, COVID has changed when we walk into a room and there are lots of people. It changes our reaction to that. Um, when, we, when we hear someone cough, it changes our reaction to that. For me as a parent, one way that one of the effects of trauma was this hypervigilance. Um, I was just constantly as, you know, I have two beautiful girls now who are five and almost three. And I'm constantly, <laughs> as my, my husband coined the term, I don't know if it's a verb, but because he says you're hypervigilating right now because I'm just so anxious and like scanning yeah. the room and like thinking about any potential threats or problems. And I think that's happening a lot with teachers that a lot of teachers are, kind of experiencing this hypervigilance of like what's coming next, kind of being on edge and being anxious. 
And they don't even realize that they're experiencing that, but they just know by the end of the day, you know, by the end of the day, any teacher pre-pandemic was exhausted probably. And it's compounded by um, kind of trying to constantly scan for like what's happening in the classroom. How can I be conscious of everybody's needs in addition to all of these safety protocols that student's not wearing his mask correctly? You know, what what do I need to be aware of and juggling inside my brain? And it is exhausting for teachers. That is so interesting that you're saying that because that's a conversation I've had a lot with just personal friends and people that people, everyone just feels so exhausted and everyone's questioning, why do I feel so exhausted? I've spent the last two years alone in my house. Like, why, why am I tired? It's that, that uh, worry fatigue. And, and that's one of the questions I always like to ask teachers um, is what makes you tired? And the answer is usually not my students, right? It, it is everything else. It is all the non-teaching business of teaching. Um, and it's the bureaucracy. It's all the policies. It's all the paperwork. And now it's this sort of, you know, super hyper-consciousness of all the needs that, that teachers recognize and this awareness that like, there's not enough of me to meet those needs. Yeah. Jennifer, I'm wondering about something and this, so the, the use of the word trauma, first of all, a lot of people have resistance to it, or they don't want to necessarily acknowledge their own trauma because it feels like wallowing or they don't want to fall into this victim mentality. So I'm wondering if you can give us your thinking on how do we balance that? How do we hold those two seemingly opposing things side by side that I have gratitude, I have privilege, I am a strong person, and also I have trauma without becoming that victim or having a victim mentality? Yeah, I I definitely see that. And I think for me, I had to ask myself, like, why was I so willing to um, say that other people experienced trauma and I could have compassion for that? But I was so unwilling to say that about myself. If you want to have resilience and, and, and actually make a career out of this without being burnt out, you have to have self-compassion. I think there's a lot of power in self-compassion to say, I've been through some shit. I'm sorry. Am I allowed to say that? Um, in that Ed Surge piece, I had a line, trauma-informed instructional practices just mean teach like you know everyone's been through some shit yeah. and include yourself in that everyone. So self-compassion is reminding me of the conversation around self-care, which is it's not the same thing at all. But I think a lot of times people are equating you know, um, self-compassion, self-care, it's all part of the same package. And this idea of teachers burned out and needing to practice self-care has been a common response <laughs> during the past couple of years and a, a response now to the teacher burnout. Well, you just have to practice self-care. How is this legitimate in some ways, but not a legitimate or helpful response in other ways? I think it, it depends on what people mean by self-care. And I think that, you know, if, if a friend is saying like, I, you know, I want you to practice self-care. Why don't you take a day off from work, go get a massage like that? That's totally legit. I think sometimes when leaders are saying, hey, take care of yourselves, teachers, 
Um, but here's a bunch of stuff we ask you to do. And here's this long meeting we want you to be a part of, which could have been an email, right? I think that's not genuine. So if, if people are bringing up self-care as a means of uh, exploiting you further, right, as just another tool to, for you to ignore the fact that you're being exploited, then you, you just need to say no to that. I think a lot of teachers are demoralized. They're not burnt out, they're demoralized. So I think burnout is when you're exhausted, right? Because you're doing the work and the work is hard. I think demoralization often happens when there's this kind of cognitive dissonance between your values, your core values, why you got into education and your lived experience of that is contrary to your values. And over time, it, it just eats away at your, your resilience and your drive to continue doing this hard work. Wow. How do we fix that? How are you addressing that with the teachers that you work with? I think part of that is first identifying our core values and saying you as a person, you as a teacher, first reflect and think about the things that really matter to you and why you love education and why you love being a teacher. Because a lot of that was taken away when we went online, right? So if teachers said, I love, I I got into teaching because I love connecting with students one-on-one. I love talking to them. And it's so hard to have that connection online um, when they're just these empty boxes on a Zoom screen. So so once you identify those core values, then to to the best of your ability, start making decisions about what you give your energy to and what you spend your time doing. So say no to things that don't align with your core values. I think we combat demoralization by being self-reflective, connecting with our core values, prioritizing the things that give us joy and energy, um, and learning how to say no to things that don't. Yeah, that's really helpful. So in thinking of term, in terms of like teachers doing their own, processing their own trauma, finding their own ways of showing self-compassion and giving themselves the the nurture that they need to show up in the best ways for students. I want to talk about how we, how we bring a lot of this to our students. And you, you used a term in one of your articles, making schools human again. And I think that that's what I'm asking about. <laughs> what what are those practices that we that then filter down through us to our students that make our schools human? I think it's first by acknowledging our humanness with one another as colleagues, as educators. There we have to invest in building trust with admin um, and creating a collegial culture because that that kind of culture does show it, it students see it, right? So when students see that teachers get along, that they work together, right? That they have a culture of collaboration, they're more willing to do the same, right? To live into that culture. And then I think really encouraging mindfulness among educators and mindfulness with students. For me, mindfulness was the superpower that got me through the hardest most anxious time of my second pregnancy. And so that's something that I really promote among educators and I practice with my students. You started these practices for yourself and you realized that they were so helpful to you that you wanted to bring them to your students and you started 
incorporating mindfulness into your classroom. And I think we'd love to hear the story, the nuts and bolts of, first of all, how did you do that? Did What resources did you use to do that? And how did your students respond? Because sometimes we're afraid to try things and it seems like it's going to be a tough sell. Yeah. And I would first say, like when I talk about mindfulness with educators, I say, do not try this unless you have a personal practice. It's got to come from a place of integrity. Um, So in the 2017-18 school year, my priorities were really that year to, to do mindfulness and to center student voices. And so when I pitched it to students, it was really, it started with brain research. So in terms of tools, I showed a lot of videos about how the brain works and, um, and I found them on YouTube. If you just start Googling like why mindfulness is good for you, why mindfulness is a superpower. So starting with the research, I really, especially to the AP students, I pitched it as this is going to be the most stressful year of your high school career, right? You're juniors, you're going to be taking a bunch of AP exams, right? We need to, to find a place where we can go to and be calm. And it's going to be a tool in your toolbox. Mindfulness is something that you can always use and rely on. And then I asked students to do a lot of just self-reflection. So the way it looked in my class was every, we have an alternating block. So every Monday when I saw them, which was, you know, once every two weeks, we would start the period with a mindful moment. And I was very careful not to say meditation because um, you want to make sure that you're using these terms deliberately and carefully. So I call them mindful moments. Jennifer makes an important distinction here. While mindfulness and meditation definitely overlap, they are not interchangeable terms. There are many forms and styles of meditation, some deeply connected to religious practices, whereas mindfulness is the practice of intentionally focusing awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations. It's used as a therapeutic technique and is a powerful way of regulating the nervous system and managing thought patterns. I would show a video and say, this is how your brain works. And then let's, let's try it. Let's just be quiet, right? Let's just have a mindful moment. And I have uh, an app like insight timer on my phone and it has like different gong sounds. And so I said, we'd started off with 30 seconds. Let's just take 30 seconds to breathe and see what happens. Right. And then we would debrief and talk about it. And at first for both my classes, there was a lot of giggling, a lot of looking around. And then I think the, the elements that really over time made the difference was talking about it, debriefing, and then changing up the routine. So it wasn't just about being quiet. We also did like body scans. Sometimes we had um, particular topics. So one time I wanted to focus on negative self-talk, right? And the kind of uh, thoughts that are constantly running in the background of your brain. And I had a piece of paper under a document camera and I said, I'm just going to write down everything that's in my brain right now. And I encouraged them to do the same. And they saw me write things like, I shouldn't have worn this top today. I look fat, you know, that kind of thing, you know, and I was just very vulnerable about here's all the negative self-talk that's constantly going on in my brain, you know, let's get that out there and then talk about how do we combat this negative self-talk with some self-compassion. And it got to the point where especially, you know, my AP students 
would come to class and say, we have a chemistry test next period, or we, we have a physics test. Can we please have a mindful moment right now? And they started asking for it and it became more frequent. I love that. And I think your vulnerability and modeling was probably a big key for getting buy-in, I'm guessing. Yes, for sure. If you're listening and thinking you might like something a little more structured than what Jennifer is describing, and you want to start introducing these practices with your students, you'll want to try Muzu. I'm Pasquale Acono, account executive with Muzum. We are an award-winning SEL program, and we are proud to sponsor this episode of Ed Curation's podcast. Are you searching for an SEL program that your students will love? Look no further. Muzumapp.com has it all. With a free first module, you can help your students build positive relationships, navigate stressful situations, and acquire knowledge and skills in key SEL competencies. Through truly relatable characters and a choose-your-own-adventure experience, students and teachers can take their morning announcements, positive behavior programs, and Tier 2 interventions to new heights. So check out muzumapp.com and see why educators, administrators, parents, and students are calling Muzum the future of social-emotional learning. You can find Muzum at edcuration.com and learn about their free pilot opportunity. So would you say that mindfulness maybe is one aspect of trauma-informed practices? And also just the awareness of what the effects of trauma could look like in your students. So like you said, you referenced the Oprah book, right? Like shifting from what is wrong with you to what happened to you, right? Um, and, and not just assuming the worst about students and saying the way I'm going to look at my students is not these, this student is being disruptive, this student is not following my directions, this willful defiance, but rather what's happening here, right? Taking that kind of curious student-centered mindset. So I'm thinking in terms of MTSS that using mindfulness practices in the classroom would be like a tier one, you know, intervention, right? We would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. And so then in thinking of maybe the other tiers, it's, it's tricky, right? Because trauma can look different in each individual. It's not always easy for a teacher to understand where a behavior is coming from. What should teachers be aware of around um, kind of the diagnostic phase of, of trauma-informed instruction? Really, my only guiding principle as an educator is teach the students in front of you, right? That, that's always been my focus. And the, I think the best thing any educator can do is put in the work to get to know students. And, and it, I know it feels overwhelming. And I know that I'm speaking from a place where I, I am focusing on 16 students right now. And other teachers might be focusing on 130, you know. Um, but to the best of your ability, find out as much as you can. Go, go talk to the counselor. Look at their, um, if you've got a good SIS, look at that information there. You know, look at what language they speak at home. When did they enroll? Have they moved around a lot in the last five years? And not just teachers, right? So I don't want to put the whole burden on teachers. Teams of educators, counselors, people who work in student services, you know, work together to get as much information as possible about students. Um, and then use that information to ask good questions and gathering that information from the students themselves. Let them tell you. I use a lot of Google Forms in my classroom and asking students directly, tell me, you know, 
tell me about what your goals are. Tell me about your family. So I think that also is tier one, right? So that's just good instruction of building community in the classroom, giving students space to talk about themselves and getting to know one another. Yeah, that's super helpful. You talked about integrating mindfulness in your classroom, and that was just you. You just decided to do that. It wasn't an initiative that was coming from above in your school or your district. What are you doing in terms of training and resources to continue to help get smarter and more informed about these practices? Yeah, I think for me, the last few years has been, this is sort of just a passion that I have. And when given the opportunity, I have led professional development sessions on mindfulness. Um, And there have been interested teachers in my district who said, I'm going to try this, you know, please give me some resources. And I, you know, a lot of it has, is under the umbrella of social emotional learning, which is an initiative, I think, for every school everywhere. Yeah. So it's a matter of collecting that data and as a school, really trying to find those actionable items. I don't know if if mindfulness should be a district initiative. I, I personally hate the word initiative too, because it's like, it implies you start something and that's it. We started it. We're done. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. When anything becomes an initiative, I you know, teachers immediately like react, right? You're just putting another thing on my plate. So I think my method of just kind of within the context of these relationships I have with teachers and and encouraging them to be more mindful about SEL and about these particular practices. I'm thinking too in terms of it not having to be like um, a portion of the day or instruction, but more the kind of learning environment and space that you create. Um, We keep talking about Oprah's book, Oprah and um, Dr. Bruce Perry, he talks about giving students both permission and space and and some instruction too around self-regulation and how what a big part of trauma-informed practice that is. And that so many of the things that people in general do to regulate, like tapping a pencil or swaying, or maybe even like humming or needing to to move are all the kinds of things that are discouraged in a classroom because they might be considered distracting behaviors. But a lot of those things are the things that we need to do as people to to self-regulate. And um, so how can we give us a snapshot of how we can create a learning space and a learning environment that allows for all of those things that help us Um, because of course we're going to be better learners. Absolutely. And I I have thought and read a lot about self-regulation. I have a five-year-old who's got a lot of big feelings. Um, that's the best way I could put it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm obsessed with her kindergarten teacher. She is the best. And she does a lot of work with her students on social, emotional learning. And she tells me that my daughter will get kind of grumpy and explosive and she'll, she's gotten to the point now where she'll say, I need to go to the calm down tent. And I heard that and I thought, oh, that's beautiful. I wish there was a calm down tent in my classroom. And then I thought, well, why not? Why can't there be, right? right. In a school classroom. I mean, I'm not going to have like a pink princess tent in my classroom. However, I do think that that kind of thinking that we, we need... A Secondary teachers need to learn from elementary school teachers 
I think we need to think about the structures that are in place. So sure, if 80% of your time is spent lecturing from, a, you know, from the front of the classroom, of course, you're going you're gonna to see those behaviors as disruptive and defiant, right? But if students are engaged and working together and talking, and then a lot of these behaviors just become part of the kind of cacophony of, of what's going on in the classroom. And I know that it's difficult. We, we had a student, um, a colleague of mine, we shared a student and it, he would, he, he had ADHD and he was just, he would get so antsy that sometimes I would write on a piece of paper, you know, can you please hold the student and, and give him something to do for five minutes and then send him back. And I would give him the piece of paper and I'd say, go to this other teacher. This is a very important paper. I need you to take to this other teacher. And, they would, and he, he would go off and he, sometimes he just needed that walk. So just recognizing that, acknowledging that, making sure that you're not doing, the students aren't asked to do the same thing for like 45 minutes at a time, right? That, that you are breaking things up um, and you're giving them that room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm envisioning too. So in terms of the calm down tent, right? Mm-hmm. Just setting up the norms in your classroom that if you are having trouble focusing or if you need to get some energy out or you're feeling big feelings, right? And you need to put your headphones in with some music and go stand in the back of the room and dance or jump for a minute, you know, for five minutes or whatever to like help your body calm down. That that's we okay. do set it up, that that's okay. And it does, then it's not a distraction anymore because right. people aren't wondering like, why is Joe jumping in the back of the room? We just know. Joe needs to do that to help himself focus, to help himself be able to come back and do the work he needs to do today. You know, I, and I have a student who constantly asks to go to the bathroom every day, like every day, like mo- he tries multiple times a day. And I know he just needs to walk around a bit. And so I just say, I'm going to let you go. But when you come back, you need to give me five minutes of focus, you know, and, and just being upfront with students about that. Yeah. I'm giving you what you need so that you can do what you need when you get back. Yeah. Jennifer, you've already shared a lot of beautiful success stories in terms of classrooms and specific students, but do you have some favorites in terms of either trauma-informed practices or mindfulness? Yeah, a couple of students uh, come to mind. I had a student who was very driven, very focused, wanted to get the top scores on every AP exam. Um, And in his Again, I use a lot of surveys. So in his sort of end of the year reflection in my AP class, I asked what students would remember most. And he said it it was the mindfulness. And he confessed that he thought it was just sort of silly at first. But he actually gave a speech at the baccalaureate event when he graduated and said, you know, I learned a lot in high school. And I think maybe the most important thing is that I learned was mindfulness, was that I have this tool that I can, I can take out and just kind of go into this place where I can calm down and center myself and keep going. And then a, another student reached out to me. I taught her, I would say like my second, the third year of teaching before I even knew what mindfulness was before SEL became a buzzword. Um, I was just trying to teach. Right. And I, and I really want teachers to hear me when I say that we have been doing SEL for generations upon generations. She reached out to me online and just said, you know, thank you that, thank you for your piece. And I want you to know that I had you as a teacher in a really dark time in my life. And that I was, I know now that I had experienced a childhood trauma and I didn't, I was stuck in that. And she would write me letters 
And then years later, you know, she, she kind of pointed that to that moment and her experience in my class as starting to get out of that trauma. Um, so that, that just meant a whole lot to me that, and, and that's the thing about being a teacher. It is, you know, people always say like, well, teaching must be really rewarding. I'm like, ah. <laughs> I mean, Does it always feel that way in the moment from the yeah, day to day like, you're working in a garden that's going, you know, a really a better word would be like an orchard, right? Like you're, you're planting seeds in an orchard and you may never see these giant redwoods, yeah. you know, when they're, when they're at their height. You're probably not going to drink the wine in your lifetime. Exactly. Yeah. So speak to the, the teacher, administrator, educational leader, who is kind of the very beginning of this learning curve of figuring out how to incorporate practices, create this space, shift pedagogy. Um, what is, what is the simple action item that they can take today? Self-reflection and learning. I I think self-reflection is the beginning of any kind of change. Um, So I think for school leaders to be mindful of their own experiences of trauma, their own, what they are bringing to work every day, all the stuff inside them that they're bringing to work and then commit, commit to learning, read, you know, I, I would love to hear about school leadership, school administrators being part of a book club and like getting together and talking about these things, um, listening to teachers and doing your best to minimize all the non-teaching business of teaching for your teachers. Yeah. And then in terms of that teacher who is feeling overwhelmed, you, in a conversation we had once um, previous to this one, you shared this idea of only doing what only you can do. So if you're a teacher feeling burned out, maybe audit what is taking up your time, your energy, and your focus, and then start to trim and leave only what only you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I got to the point where I went to my husband and I said, I cannot keep up with the house. Like that, our house is a mess and I can pick up and I can do dishes, but we both work full time. Let's, let's hire someone to clean the house right now, especially at the age my, my children are at, only I can be mom for them. I can give them my presence. So I'm going to do that and let somebody else clean my house once a month. And as a teacher, I think, fi- I know it sounds overwhelming to learn like a new technology, but if a, if, if some, a skill that you can learn to simplify your workflow online, do mm-hmm. it, do it. Because if you can automate something so you can focus just on those, creating those genuine moments of connections with students so that you can you know, have those aha moments, do it. If you need to take a webinar to learn how to organize your Google drive, because it will save you time later. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what I would say to teachers, like identify your core values, find ways where you can spend your time doing the things that give you joy, then, then minimize everything else. Only do what only you can do. I'm just thinking in terms of moving toward creating these spaces that allow for self-regulation that acknowledge trauma. I'm wondering if we, I'm, I'm, and I'm hoping that as we as educators become more informed and that we begin to incorporate more of these practices, we might see less 
of the unhealthy self-regulation that it might just automatically sort of fall away. The vaping, the cutting, you know, the things, the other things that kids are doing to, to kind of self-regulate would start to evaporate as we give them healthy ways of doing this. Do you think that could happen? I really hope so. I, I really hope so. And I think that, you know, once you really enjoy the benefits of mindfulness or just, you know, that you, you crave that quiet, right. You, you crave that empty space. I, I look at my students. I just, there's, it's an addiction. They have, they are addicted to social media. They're addicted to their phones. They're addicted to the constant and immediate feedback um, and, and need for just like, approval from others. So I, for me, I think one of the biggest challenges as an educator is, is managing in in student addiction to their phones. Um, And more so than vaping, you know, way more than that. I'm hoping that when we practice mindfulness and when we give our students other ways of to self-regulate and not just distract themselves, that they will become addicted to it and they seek out those quiet moments and they can find spaces where they can focus and and just be alone and quiet with themselves. You'll find links to Jennifer U. Brannon's EdSearch page in the episode notes where you can find her articles, Trauma is Everywhere, My Experience with It Made Me a Better Teacher, We Need to Make Schools Human Again, There's No Easy Protocol for Handling Classroom Conflict, and her most recent article, Concerned Parents and Lawmakers, Here's What You'll See in My Classroom. You can also follow Jennifer on Twitter at JUBrannon. If you're at the beginning of a learning curve or just need some more knowledge and support as an educator, check out today's sponsor, Infobase. Marta Fuchs, the Director of Library Services at Drew School in San Francisco, raves. Thank you for creating such an effective product that enhances students' and teachers' learning experience. For flexible and high-quality professional learning, search InfoBase at edcuration.com and click the Connect to Vendor button to learn more about InfoBase's suite of K-12 products. And if you're looking for a way to engage students in building SEL and real-life skills in just 30 minutes a week while decreasing teacher workload, inquire about a free trial of MooZoom at edcuration.com. Links in the episode notes. And one more place to find brief, interactive, and immediately applicable professional learning is through EdCuration's own Explorations. They're free and you'll receive classroom resources and a professional learning certificate. Find them, along with all of our other great content for educators, at edcuration.com. And thanks for listening today to this episode of the EdCuration Podcast. Podcast.